The psalmist writes, deal bountifully with your servants that we may live and keep your word. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. Father, that's our prayer this morning, that our greatest need today is that you speak to us. Say, Father God, would you be gracious and would you give us ears to hear we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John Hayward has been a maths professor for 32 years. His particular topic of interest is computer modelling. You know some of his work. It was on the back of his work that we became obsessed with the R rate during the lockdowns and the COVID epidemic. We all became amateur virologists, didn't we? That we knew uh, an R rate above one, that was bad, and an R rate below one, that was good news. John Hayward, since becoming famous with the R rate, has done some computer modelling to research the expected life expectancy of mainline denominations in the UK based on their R rate. Unlike COVID, though, it works completely the other way round. You want a high R rate. You want your members of your church to be reproducing as they hold out the gospel. And unfortunately, it was bad news. Depressingly, only five out of the 19 denominations put through the model, only five of them will survive the 21st century. John Hayward, I think, is only putting a graph behind what we all feel here in Scotland. Scotland seems like particularly hard ground. Scotland feels like the door is somewhat closed to the gospel. Church planting, yes, but church closures, more. Conversate, uh, conversions, yes, but people walking away from the faith, seemingly more. The vestiges of a Christian culture, yes, but rapid secularization, more. Gospel conversations, yes, but greeted with mild indifference or downright hostility, more. Evangelistic courses, yes but poor attendance, more. The door for the gospel, it seems here in Scotland, seems to be closing. The door for the gospel seems to be closing. The air seems to be turning more toxic. Think about 30 years ago. People respected the church, they didn't want to go, but they thought it was quite a good thing. They thought it was helpful, it was a place you could go in difficulty. It was a place with terrible coffee and appalling biscuits. But they thought it was a good thing. They thought it was providing some sort of community service. That's not true today. People don't think the church is a good thing. They think what we're doing this morning is a malevolent evil. And Scotland would do well to jettison all of its Christian past and to make even more forthright legislation to limit the impact of the gospel here in Scotland. I think Stephen McAlpine in his book called Being the Bad Guys 
um, summarises it well. He writes, quote, Only a few generations ago, Christianity was the good guy, the solution to what was bad. Rather than being on the wrong side of the law, we Christians were the law. Christian morality was assumed and passed mainly unchallenged. The cultural, legal and political power structures affirmed Christians. Then something changed. Over the course of the 20th century, we became just one of the guys. One option among many. A voice to be considered, but not to be followed unquestioningly. If Christianity worked for you, fine. If it didn't work for you, also fine. Most of us think we still live in that world. Most Christian books, sermons and podcasts assumes that we do. In many ways, we've, just, we've only just worked out how to live well as one of the guys. But the problem is that that's not where we are now. The tide has shifted further. Increasingly, Christianity is viewed as the bad guy. Christianity is no longer an option, it's a problem. The cultural, political and legal guns that Christianity once held are now trained on us. And it's happened very quickly. The number of those professing faith has fallen dramatically. The number of those who reject the faith they held until their late teens has risen dramatically. The seat at the cultural table that we assumed was ours for keeps is increasingly being given to others. We're seemingly on the wrong side of history, the wrong side of so many issues and so many conversations. If this were a Western, we would be the guys wearing the black hats whose appearance is accompanied by the foreboding soundtrack. It comes as a surprise. We're not sure how it happened. We don't like it and we don't feel like we deserve it. But we are the bad guys now. End quote. And I think we feel that, don't we? And what are we going to do about it? Well, the temptation is that we batten down the hatches. We just go into maintenance mode. We just do our own thing, let the world do its own thing, and try and get our paths to cross as few times as possible. We start to lose courage. We start to lack boldness. We're not going to be on the front foot evangelistically. We're going to take a step back and like a submarine, we're going to remain under the surface Monday to Saturday and maybe pop the periscope up on Sunday when we're behind home lines. But I want to urge us today that that is not what we should do. That I think we need a shot in the arm and thankfully God's word provides the shot in the arm that we need. I want us to look at a passage in the book of Acts which I hope will leave us encouraged, strengthened, courageous, emboldened. So if you've got a Bible near you, turn to Acts 16 with me. Acts along with the Gospel of Luke is written to Theophilus and to us. And its whole purpose is to give us certainty about the things we've been taught about the Lord Jesus. Give us rock solid certainty. And that that certainty would grow into confidence and that confidence would grow into courage. And that courage would send us out from here on mission with the Lord Jesus. What we need most 
against the backdrop of a secularizing society and the hostile hard ground upon which we find ourselves is an understanding that King Jesus sovereignly opens doors for the gospel. He does. King Jesus sovereignly opens doors for the gospel as he conducts his unstoppable mission to save his people. We're going to be in Acts 16. Um, So let me read. Verse 6, 16 verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and bore her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and asked, crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men, are dist- these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had afflicted, inflicted many bows upon, blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, 
What must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. We're now on Paul's second missionary journey. Luke writes very ordered accounts and he splits the book of Acts into seven sections and the ending of um, section five um, we find in chapter 16 verse five. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. That comes after the episode of the Jerusalem Council. That said Gentiles are now full members of the church of Jesus Christ that God's grace extends to them. And they don't need to become Jews in order to become Christians. Gentiles can become Christians all by the unsurpassing grace of the Lord Jesus. There's been a bit of a change in personnel. Barnabas has left because Paul had a Barney with Barney about John Mark. And there's also been a new recruit to the team, Timothy, who undergoes the most painful induction service ever known. And so here in chapter 16, verse 6, brimming with potential, the newly ordered mission team are ready to go out once again to make much of the Lord Jesus in the known world. But see, firstly, they're met with frustrated plans. Look with me at verses 6 and 7. The second missionary journey starts in frustration. The mission team had plans, but they were frustrated by the Holy Spirit from speaking the word in Asia. They wanted to go to Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus would not allow them. God himself had closed these doors. The mission team was not going to go this way or that way. So they found themselves in Troas. And one night in a, during his sleep, Paul had a vision A vision from God of a man from Macedonia. And the man from Macedonia said, come over to Macedonia and help us. Two doors closed by the Lord, but one door massively opened by the Lord. The gospel was being summoned in Europe. God wanted his mission team to cross continents. The gospel had won victories, crossing Geographical divides, ethnic divides, spiritual divides. 
And now I was going to cross a continental divide. So verse 10, Paul wakes up and is really clear what the vision meant. God was calling them to go and preach the gospel in Macedonia. This was a gospel that the Lord Jesus had opened and was encouraging his servants to go through. Just in passing, note that Luke has turned up in the story. So verses 6 to 9 is all about they. But see verse 10. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia. It seems that Luke has joined the team as well. Silas is new. Timothy is new. And here's Luke, the writer, entering the story. Luke will show up quite a lot in the remainder of the book of Acts. He particularly shows up when there's a large sea voyage in view. And I don't know about you, but the one time I would like a doctor on hand is when I'm going for a large sea voyage. Somebody to give me the medication to stop me throwing my guts up over the side. And so they get on their way and they go from Troas to Samothrace, that's 70 miles. And then they go from Samothrace to Neapolis, another 70 miles. And then from Neapolis, they travel the 11 miles inland to the big city of Philippi. And see, in verse 12, you could not get a more unpromising city to be the base of operations for gospel ministry in Europe. See how Philippi is described? A leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. In fact, it turns out that Philippi functioned as something like a luxury retirement community for Roman soldiers and the Roman nobility. On the Mediterranean coast, a wonderful climate, full of quite posh people, all who had done military service or had made their own way in the world. This is a posh, pagan place with lots of war-hardened military personnel and lots of people rich enough to be insulated from the trials of life. Philippi, I'm sure as they were on their way from Troas, they thought, Philippi? Really? That seems like incredibly hard ground for the gospel. That seems like a tough gig, first up. <clears throat> Not only that, but verse 13, it is a place without any substantial Jewish community. There's no synagogue in Philippi. To establish a synagogue, you needed 10 Jewish men. And in Philippi, there wasn't a synagogue. Nearly everywhere Paul has so far gone in Acts, it was clear where they were to start. They started in the synagogue, but Philippi is different. Because there is no synagogue. And it was a Jewish custom, if there wasn't a synagogue, that Jewish people and God-fearing proselytes would gather by the banks of the nearest river. And so that's where they make their way on the Sabbath day. See, it's double outside. It's outside the city gates. And it's next to the um, natural barrier of the river. And far from there being less than 10 Jewish men in the city, it seems there's no Jewish men in the city because the only people that gather are women. It doesn't seem like the door is particularly wide for the gospel in Jerusalem. 
in uh, Philippi. It seems like a terrifically hard place with a very small amount of resources to get going with. But undeterred and confident that Jesus opens doors that no one else can, he preaches the gospel. And we read that one woman, Lydia, a God-fearer, a mercantile Turkish woman from Thyatira who sold purple goods to the wealthy locals, was converted. And the way she was converted was that the Lord opened her heart to the gospel. That even in Philippi, where the door seemed firmly shut, the Lord Jesus sovereignly opens her heart to receive him as Lord and Saviour. Jesus opens hearts as he conducts his unstoppable mission. Lydia was baptised along with her household. If you're a Presbyterian, she had lots of young children. If you're a Baptist, she, had lots of, she was an empty nester. And she became a gospel patron of gospel ministry in Philippi. The one having been saved immediately becomes a servant of the gospel team. Not only is there now a Christian in Philippi, but there's now a wealthy woman able to resource gospel operations in this city that seems like such hard ground. Jesus sovereignly opens doors for the gospel in the most unexpected places. The second missionary journey got off to a frustrating start before transitioning to an unpromising location. And yet King Jesus was overseeing his mission and working out his purposes in Philippi, starting with a Turkish woman called Lydia. That's encouraging, isn't it? Edinburgh seems like incredibly hard soil. The secularizing society seems largely antagonistic to the gospel. And yet over and above it all is the sovereign King Jesus, who just like then, still today, opens doors for his wonderful good news that's able to save people to the uppermost. You see, the gospel wins victories in unpromising places. And let's be clear today, Edinburgh seems like an unpromising place. And yet King Jesus is still king. And he's still conducting his unstoppable mission. Frustrated plans and divine appointments now gives way to a freed slave and a saved jailer. Look with me at verse 16. The mission team decide that continuing to gather with the Jews and proselytes on the riverbank is a good move, so they set to do it again. But this day they're intercepted by a doubly enslaved girl. She's enslaved to her masters and also enslaved to an evil spirit who exploits her as some kind of mystic fortune teller. However, just like Jesus in Luke, when the evil spirit comes into contact with the gospel, there is no ambiguity about where the real power lies. The evil spirit declares these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Evil spirits would always get an A star in theology, but they always fail when it comes to faith. An evil spirit in a pagan city concedes to the fact that God is the most high God, the God over all gods, the unmatched, um, omniscient God. 
the saving God who loves people so much he finds a way for them to be rescued. And again, just like Jesus not allowing evil spirits to testify to his identity, Paul equally is greatly annoyed by the spirit's lip service. Therefore, he performs an exorcism. And with but one sentence in Jesus' name, he casts the demon out. The testimony proves true. The name of Jesus Christ powerfully saves the girl. A door is opened and the spirit is powerless to resist the command that he must exit. Jesus again opens doors sovereignly as he conducts his unstoppable mission. Interestingly, it was a man from Macedonia who called Paul and the mission team to come over to Macedonia to help us. And so far it's been two women who have been saved and helped by the message of the Lord Jesus. Two women, but at totally opposite ends of the socio-political spectrum. A posh Turkish woman and an enslaved slave girl. Well, not everyone is thrilled by the miracle. The slave owners, far from rejoicing at her release, are conscious of the economic hit that they are going to take. And so what do they do? They enact mob justice. They grab Paul and Silas, they drag them into the marketplace, and they have a shotgun trial in front of the magistrates. This is the charge. These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice. There's so much irony here. It is the slave owners who are upsetting the city as they form a riot. The Christians have not said anything about the customs and practices, and they are certainly not a threat to Rome. This is xenophobic, bigoted intolerance that just cascades out of their mouths. These men are Jews, they would say. And again, there's a great intolerance of intolerance. And that's a bit like Edinburgh today. Verse 22, there's no trial, there's no sentence. Paul and Silas are simply cancelled in the most brutal way, attacked, stripped, beaten with rods savagely. They inflicted many blows upon them. There's a degree of substitution in this scene. A slave girl who was double enslaved is released. And Paul and Silas are now not only imprisoned, but also enchained in prison in the stocks, fastened in the inner prison by their feet. The strengthening message that Paul had preached to all the believers at the end of his first missionary journey, saying to the congregations in Lystra and Derby, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God, he said. And here he is, living it out, beaten up, in prison, as living proof of the truthfulness that through many tribulations, the kingdom of God is entered. So verse 25, far from sitting in prison, licking their wounds, thinking, well, how on earth has this happened? Paul and Silas have had a pretty rough day, but far from feel sorry for themselves... They're praying and they're singing hymns. 
And note, it's such a fascinating comment. And the prisoners were listening to them. In the middle of the night, deep in a prison, there's a prayer meeting with some a cappella singing going on. And all the other prisoners are on the edge of their seat listening in. And in verse 26, in typical Acts style, it's already happened twice in the unfolding narrative of Acts, there is a miraculous opportunity for a prison escape. A massive earthquake that leaves the building intact, but everyone's bonds are unfastened and all the cell doors fling wide. And again, Jesus is showing that he's able to open doors. So easy for him. And verse 27, the jailer, realizing the doors were open, drew his sword to kill himself, knowing that Roman law would sentence him to death by crucifixion for failing to perform his guard duty and allowing the prisoners to escape. He decides he'll expedite his own death rather than face that punishment. However, Paul intervenes, crying out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. That amazes me. We are all here. I mean, you might expect Paul and Silas to be there. Do you know, the good little Christian boys. We could escape, but we won't because we're good law-abiding citizens even though we've been unjustly treated. But it says we're all here, all the prisoners, All the ones listening to the prayer meeting, when they've got the opportunity to escape, they say, no, we're going to stick around to hear more from Paul and Silas because they seem to be offering something that even if we escape these prison doors, we'll never find. An open door in the prison was nothing compared to the open door for the gospel that these people wanted to stick around to walk through by faith. The jailer rushes in, so astonished was he by the reluctant fugitives that he falls down before them trembling and asks, verse 30, what must I do to be saved? A Roman general, most uh, a Roman jailer, most probably somebody who's done hard military service, who never quite earned enough money to properly retire, so becomes a prison Jailer looking after the convicts, the most hardened man you could imagine in Philippi, falls before the mission team and says, what must I do to be saved? An open door in the prison, an open door amongst the prisoners, now an open door in the jailer's life. It's clear from Acts 16 that opening doors is easy for the sovereign Lord Jesus as he conducts his unstoppable mission and so Paul preaches the word the jailer believes him and his entire household loads of grandchildren in the house if you're a Presbyterian long since said goodbye to everyone to university if you're a Baptist but see the picture that Luke is painting Philippi was such hard ground and yet opening the doors is so easy for the Lord Jesus. And so we come into land in verses 35 and 40, and we see vindicated believers and fearful authorities. 
The final episode in Philippi is awkward. Having slept on it, the magistrates decide that Paul and Silas have been wrongly imprisoned. And so they send the police to let them go. They try and make it go away quietly. They don't want a review. They don't want an inquiry as to how this has happened. Paul, though, is determined to make a spectacle to ensure the ongoing safety of the fledgling church in Philippi in the eyes of the authorities. Paul says they have beaten us publicly. We're uncondemned men who are Roman citizens. They've thrown us in prison and now they want to throw us out secretly. No, they must come themselves and take us out. This is a damning report to the powers that be in Philippi. To deny justice to a Roman citizen in a Roman colony is a capital offence. You can just see the blood draining from everyone's faces in the town hall in Philippi. Oh no, what have we done? This is going to cost us. They've not been denying justice to mid-Jews but to Jews who were also Roman citizens. And so the whole scene is heightened. See what it says, they were afraid. No Christians in Acts 16 are afraid. The only two people that are afraid are the Roman jailer before he's converted and then that fear gives way to rejoicing. And the people who are perpetually afraid are the authorities when they see the power of the Lord Jesus at work in his world. And so with egg dripping down their faces, they trudge to the prison. They're forced to apologize and escort Paul and Silas out of the city. Though Paul and Silas decide they'll make a little detour and visit Lydia. And notice that they encourage the brothers, which gives us an insight that, yes, Lydia... Yes, the slave girl, yes, the jailer, but the gospel's done wonderful things in Philippi during Paul and Silas's stay. That in Lydia's house, there are the brothers, a congregation of people called to belong to Jesus Christ. Yes, we've got a picture of some of the doors that the Lord Jesus has opened, but the Lord Jesus has opened lots of doors in Philippi. And there's now a core team And they've decided they're going to call it Grace Church Philippi, which is a terrific name for a church. See that the sovereign Lord Jesus specializes in opening doors for the gospel in unpromising places. That's what we need to know. That's what keeps us on the front foot. That's what makes us think, despite what the graphs would say, Jesus is king. He wins, his church grows. Today, all over the world, there are more believers in the Lord Jesus than there's ever been in history. We just don't really get a sense of that in Scotland. But let us be those Christians who hope that this Jesus who specializes in opening doors in unpromising places might be pleased to open many doors in Edinburgh, many doors in Leith, Many doors in our family, many doors in our circle of friends, many doors amongst our neighbours, co-workers and classmates. Be certain, this Jesus 
specializes in opening doors in unpromising places. And let us pray that we would be faithful. We would be so faithful in walking through the doors that he opens. And so faithful in praying that he would open many, many more doors. What a compelling community is left in Philippi. Have you ever thought of that? Lydia, the posh Turkish woman who sells purple things. The slave girl at the bottom of the, the, the rung. The Roman jailer, the hardened pagan war veteran. And everyone in between. Jesus can open any doors. And so let's continuously hope that he will. Looking out on Edinburgh, it's a bit bleak. And we're tempted to be a bit depressed. But leave here today certain that King Jesus is still sovereignly opening doors as he conducts his unstoppable mission. And may we be his faithful people who faithfully walk through the doors that he's opening. Let's pray together. Father God, we want to say that it is a joy to be subjects of King Jesus this morning. We're so thankful that he has opened doors in each of our lives, that our hearts were opened, that as Christ was preached, our eyes saw him for who he really is. And Father, we're conscious that if you've opened those doors, you can open any doors. And so, Lord, make us faithful in prayer, faithful in following, and faithful in heralding the wonderful saving news of the unstoppable King Jesus. Lord, make us bold, make us courageous. Father, make us useful. To you, our master, we pray. Amen.